Welcome to this extra reflection from the National Galleries of Scotland. I'm Ewan Bremner, and in these shorter episodes, we dive into another aspect of the artists and ideas from our interviews. Dr. Jeremy Black is Professor of History at the University of Exeter. He's the author of four books on the Grand Tour in the 18th century and first became fascinated in this artistic and aesthetic pilgrimage through his wider research. What's the impact of this tradition on contemporary British culture? Jeremy treated us to our very own Grand Tour on the subject. I became interested in the Grand Tour from a rather unusual background. My original work, my doctorate, uh, done in the 1970s, was on British foreign policy and attitudes to Europe in the 18th century. And in doing a lot of archival work, I found a lot of Grand Tour correspondence that hadn't really been used. I got into the Grand Tour because I felt that too much of the work on it was literary and not enough was about what really happened. I went round all the county record offices, I went to the major national archives, and I was looking at people's letters to each other, their journals, uh, and also, because I'd done a lot of work on the papers of British diplomats, both their official papers, but even more their private papers, I found much material by them uh, commenting on the tourists, and also tourists corresponding with them. The Grand Tour was largely elite travel for pleasure um, in the long 18th century. So it began with the lessening of religious warfare in the mid-17th century after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Um, and essentially, it provided something for young men in particular, a certain number of women travelled, but for young men in particular to do whilst they were bluntly waiting for their fathers to die. But having said that, there was no set pattern. So, for example, in the 18th century, you can find family groups travelling, you can find people travelling later in life with their spouses, you can find women travelling on their own, though when they did that they usually went with, with servants, members of the elite travelling for pleasure, but also sometimes adding other purposes. So, for example, acquiring foreign languages. The British, Britain in the 18th century was a very wealthy country and an increasingly wealthy country. The British were particularly known for their tourism, but other elite people from European countries also travelled. The major destinations in the Grand Tour were Paris and Italy. So that if you were a Swedish tourist or a Russian tourist, these would be your destinations as much as if you were a British tourist. But obviously getting to Paris and to Italy um, had implications in terms of where else you would travel. And it's also the case that for a whole host of reasons, people went elsewhere. People went for all sorts of reasons. My favourite is a couple of uh, young members of the aristocracy who in the 1780s, um, probably drunk, uh, were sort of had a bet that one of them couldn't come back within several months with two lap women and two reindeer, and in fact they did. Now that was fairly exotic. Elizabeth Lady Craven, who fell out with her husband, found that she wasn't really socially acceptable in London, and she travelled up the Baltic to Russia. She travelled across Russia and through the Black Sea to the Bosphorus, writing a book about that. She then travelled through Greece, Italy, and into Germany. Now, that was completely different to the standard young man going on the Grand Tour. 
tourism was a very nuanced story. There was the official, as it were, sort of cultural positioning, the politeness, the acquisition of virtu in the sense of artistic taste and sensibility. And there was the raucous reality. And on the one hand, Jane Austen is writing about politeness and sensibility. And on the other hand, bluntly, the fact is a lot of young men are more like Wickham playing the field. And that was very much the case in Europe. And not just men, women as well. Tourists would expect to see great works of art. How art was defined, though, changed quite appreciably. In the first half of the 18th century, the emphasis was more on the culture of the Baroque and paintings. By the late 18th century, you have a much stronger neoclassical cultural impulse. And this leads in several different ways. It obviously means different styles in painting, but it also means much greater interest than hitherto in statuary, uh, and also greater interest than hitherto in Roman sight. Now, some British tourists notoriously didn't pay much attention, but others did, and they knew it was what you were supposed to do. And the way in which tourists imaged themselves was increasingly as if they were modern classical figures. There's the very famous painting by Pompeo Bertoni of a member of the Gordon family dressed in what must have been a very hot uh, woolen tartan, standing in the Roman Forum, and as if he is the person that is taken over from Rome. And indeed, that idea captured the notion of what was known in English, I mean, there was a, it was originally a classical phrase, of the translation of the empires. The idea that was very strong was that modern Britain was the heir to ancient Rome, that in fact the modern Italians were decadent and sort of unworthy people, and it was Britain that was the society that had inherited that position. So this idea was one that was very strong to understand modern Britain. You had to go and think about ancient Italy. And whereas tourists or travellers in the late 17th century had still seen Italy as a land of the modern, by the late 18th century, indeed by the mid-18th century, Italy was a land of the past. It was Britain that was the land of the modern. And if you look at what tourists visited when they came to Britain, what they wanted to see was the here and now sites of industrial activity and British stately home gardens, which of course were modern. Capability Bound was a modern figure. So with British tourists going abroad, they are both looking at the old, but also they are trying to understand themselves as the new that has arisen from this old. Another type of art that British tourists wish to acquire is what we might see rather harshly as, as it were, the art of the photographer. And the classic example of that is Canaletto's paintings of Venice, which provide you with an account of what you have seen. Now, some of these paintings, of course, push it a bit further. They could group together in one image buildings which were, in fact, not uh, visible at the same moment, but which nevertheless are in the city and which enable you to present it as your account of, uh, of Rome or of Florence or of Venice. And British patrons both bought that off 
Italian painters, but another very major source were British painters who went with patrons or who went under their own steam. And these British painters sometimes spent many years in in Italy and often painted very extensively. My favourite is Richard Wilson. I think Richard Wilson's paintings show a marvellous grasping of the possibilities of the blue light of the Mediterranean, both the light from the sky and the very different uh, light from the sea. And some of his um, subjects, like the entry to Lake Avernus, both capture that painterly quality of colour, but also show his deep understanding of a classical landscape, a landscape that precisely because it is redolent with the classics, later Vernus was uh, famously reputed to be one of the entrances to the underworld, um, enables, pa- enables painters to appeal to their patrons by showing what they have seen, but by often locating the patrons, either in the painting or as the audience, locating them in in a response to that classical landscape. There was a clear sense of superiority to um, Italians, and indeed to many continentals. In part, this drew on a Protestant anti-Catholicism, which was an important theme, but more particularly by the 18th century, there was a sense that Britain, as a commercial, liberal, parliamentary, law-abiding society was inherently and inevitably superior to what was seen as autocratic, reactionary, illiberal societies. And this theme was a theme particularly seen in the Whiggish uh, British tradition. It was particularly seen by British commentators who believed in the idea of the inherent progressivism of maritime societies and of liberal societies. And it was a theme that you could see variously in the writings of great Scottish and English intellectuals, whether you're looking at David Hume and Adam Smith, or William Robertson, or whether you're looking in England at Edward Gibbon. So there is this sense that there is a enlightenment in Britain and that this enlightenment in Britain is one that is describing a society that is working in an enlightened fashion, whereas on the continent there are many enlightened individuals, Murituri, for example, or Vico in Italy would be classic examples, but they are living in an unenlightened place. So Britain as the home of enlightenment is a major theme, and also there is this sense of, as it were, history as a cyclical pattern, and Italy has declined. Cultural patronage had always been a way in which the social elite had established its difference to the bulk of the population. What's interesting in the 18th century is that elite is getting wider and is broadening out to a certain extent, uh, both in urban terms and in rural terms. Secondly, it is more the case that to be a cultured individual, you're expected to have a degree of cosmopolitanism. Now, cosmopolitanism does not mean that you think that abroad is better. What it means is that you are aware of the nature of continental culture. And that is seen as an aspect of an educated individual. And linked to that, there's a whole host of developments. There is what one might call the voyeuristic grand tour. In other words, you can stay at home, never travel abroad, but own yourself engravings or works of art 
lot that you've purchased or purchased books about the Grand Tour or buy atlases. So that I think it's fair to say that the Grand Tour derives part of its strength as a cultural development from not being an activity from a small number of wealthy individuals able to do what others can't do. But rather it rests on a broader pattern of interest in the wider world, interest both geographical and historical. And the key aspect of that interest is an assumption that you should be uh, concerned about the European cultural presence, and that presence includes an understanding of its links to the past. I think it's interesting to think about the way in which the 18th century has influenced our current cultural aesthetic. Probably the two most influential aspects today are via the National Trust, and that is the extent to which so many 18th century British stately homes and their gardens were based upon an attempt to capture an image of Italian culture. So whether you're thinking about the gardens at Stourhead or the uh, house at uh, Chatsworth or Osterley or all sorts of stately homes... Uh, National Trust and private, they actually reflect an interest in an Italian quality that is quite significant. And of course, they were also decorated with Italian paintings, with Italian sculptures, and that was regarded as the norm. Secondly, I think the 18th century is captured in the modern aesthetic by the fact that the um, author that most interests British readers of novels is Jane Austen. Now, Jane Austen never went abroad, never went on the Grand Tour. But the kind of culture she is writing about, the idea of sensibility and politesse and a kind of balance and harmony, is an image of the 18th century, not an image that was always accurate, one has to note, of the reality of life, but an image which draws as much on continental notions of balance and order and harmony as it does on anything that's distinctly British. So I think that that aspect of the 18th century aesthetic is still with us. Thanks for downloading this bonus episode of Reflections, Art, Life and Love. You can listen to the rest of the series by subscribing on your podcast app. And why not find out more about the artworks on the website, nationalgalleries.org.